Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and episode number five of Chef-Timony takes us cooking on the high seas in some of the most spectacular areas of the British Columbia coast. Oh, and when you combine sailors with chefs, the language can get a little salty, just so you know. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef-Timony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. In the summer of 2015, I had one of the best experiences of my life. That July, I stepped away from office life entirely. I'd already been away from the practice of law for a few years, but I was still working in a related field and definitely still in an office. But that beautiful July, I took some time off entirely. And as I think can often happen when we give ourselves time and open ourselves to opportunity, something wonderful happened. Something that just would not have happened had I stayed in the office. My good friend Mary Schwartz, who's a fantastic pastry chef as well as the founder of a food-related charity I work with called Growing Chefs, let me know that she'd heard of a small schooner on the BC coast that needed a chef for an upcoming trip. The schooner was called Passing Cloud, and I soon learned that she is sailed by the team at Outer Shores Expeditions. They are an impressive group. Look them up at outershores.ca to see what they're all about. Passing Cloud is a gorgeous 70-foot wooden schooner designed in Halifax by the naval architect William James Rouet, who is most famous for having designed the Blue Nose, and see the Canadian dime for an image of the Blue Nose itself. Passing Cloud was built in Victoria in 1974 by a local shipwright, Brian Walker, and in her time, Passing Cloud has cruised the South Pacific, has won many races, and in more recent years has taken a select few lucky travellers to some of the most amazing places on the coast of British Columbia. In the summer of 2015, I spoke with Outer Shores captain and president Russell Markell. Russ is a really interesting guy. He's got a PhD from the Department of Zoology at the University of British Columbia, and he studied the coast of BC extensively. And happily, Russ made the decision to trade in typical academic life to start his own business, running thoughtful and exciting ecotourism expeditions along the coast of BC. Aboard Passing Cloud, Russ shares his passion and knowledge for the wildlife, the ecosystems, and the people of the BC coast. Shortly after my talk with Russ, I joined the Passing Cloud crew on northern Vancouver Island to set sail for the Great Bear Rainforest. Passing Cloud generally travels with six guests, accommodated in three beautiful staterooms, and with four crew members, captain, mate, chef, and expedition specialist. Conservation and environmental protection are very important to Russ and the whole team at Outer Shores, so having specialists along is a key part of the Passing Cloud experience. In my time on the schooner, I've been lucky to work with a bear conservancy expert, with one of the leading whale researchers in the world, and with an archaeologist who spent decades conducting research along the BC coast. In the interviews today, you'll hear references to Russ, the Outer Shores president and captain, and also to Matt, another captain, to Liam, a first mate, and to Rosie, Passing Cloud's expert on bears. It's hard to describe the beauty of this schooner and the places she sails. And this podcast is about food, so I'm just going to talk briefly about two places I've seen and two experiences I've had aboard Passing Cloud and then get back to the cooking. The two places I've seen most are Haida Gwaii and the Great Bear Rainforest. I highly recommend that you read about them, that you look at pictures from these places, and if you can make it happen, that you visit them. In Haida Gwaii, you really feel that you're at the edge of the world. It is wild and gorgeous, teeming with wildlife, and it has an indigenous cultural heritage that extends back more than 14,000 years. 
The Great Bear Rainforest is across Hecate Strait from Haida Gwaii in the central coast of BC. The wildlife here is also spectacular. Whales, bears, porpoises, wolves, otters. Look it up, read about it, visit it if you can. These areas are both beautiful, important, and vulnerable. Travel lightly, and if you spend any time there at all, I know you'll want to be a part of the effort to protect these wild places. And those two experiences. The first was in Haida Gwaii, and Captain Matt was in charge of passing cloud at the time. We received word by radio from another vessel that there was a huge pod of orcas or killer whales not far from us. Maybe 75 of them. Captain Matt's brow furrowed skeptically. It would be extraordinarily uncommon to see so many orcas together. But we were headed that direction anyway, so we kept our eyes peeled. And as we got closer to the area we'd heard described on the radio, we started to see big black dorsal fins slicing the water, dozens of them, more. It was an exhilarating moment, and as we drew closer, members of the crew who'd seen these creatures before got close enough to see that they weren't orcas at all, but Riso's dolphins. These are not the dolphins that come to mind first for most of us. These are huge, mostly black creatures, and they generally stay in the deeper water out at sea. They were absolutely churning the water here as they moved. These creatures that can be up to 13 feet long and 1,100 pounds. They were raw muscularity like I'd never seen before. As we got even closer, I could see white scarring on many of the dolphins' faces as they breached the water. I learned that this type of dolphin feeds almost exclusively on squid, and they bear the scars of deep-sea battle with squid tentacles on their faces. I was definitely out of the office now. The second experience was closer to home, at least relatively. We were sailing in Great Bear, and I'd experienced something for the first time I found to be quite magical. Doll's porpoises were bow-riding, which means that they were leaping and jumping and almost surfing in the wake created by the bow of Passing Cloud as she sliced through the water. Again, raw muscularity, albeit in smaller form than the Risos dolphins. Not long after I'd seen that bow riding close up, we saw another ship off in the distance. This ship, one of the big commercial cruise operations that head from Vancouver to Alaska with thousands of people on board. The first mate and I saw a huge wake at the bow of the cruise ship with a bunch of porpoises jumping and diving giddily in it. But while we could see this spectacular show, no one on the cruise ship could. There was no way to look down from the deck so high above to see these beautiful creatures playing and traveling with the cruise guests, and what a shame. Anyway, it drove home to me how lucky I was to be aboard Passing Cloud. Often, smaller is better. I have two guests on today's show. The first is a friend and former colleague from Vancouver's Burdock & Co. restaurant, Tasha Sawyer. At Burdock, Tasha and I both had the privilege of working with Chef Andrea Carlson, and we now share another great experience too, having cooked aboard Passing Cloud as part of the team at Outer Shores Expeditions. And we shared some pretty spectacular experiences while cooking at sea. One of the things that stands out the most is actually seeing orcas. That was a mass, I had never seen them in real life before. Just having them that close up, it's like, oh my God, they're really real and they're really, really big. After speaking with Tasha, I met up with another friend and chef, Aaron Vickers. I first met Erin in 2016 as I was leaving Passing Cloud and as she was coming aboard to take over as chef. Erin has gone on to take a leading role in the food program for Outer Shores, and my talk with her is coming up soon. First, though, my interview with Tasha Sawyer, which I started with a question about how Tasha got her start in the culinary industry. Uh, 
I have been interested in cooking probably since I was about five years old. My mother gave me a little toy kitchen, very, very tiny, and had very, very tiny pots. But she would give me things like, you know, raw rice and pieces of carrots, and I'd put them on my little play stove and pretend to make things. And it was actually a little unsatisfactory because after you pretended to cook them, they were still raw. So it's not as not as exciting as it seems. I really wanted to actually cook things, but, you know, I was five, so it didn't happen a lot. Eventually, she did actually teach me how to make a grilled cheese sandwich. And that was probably the first thing I learned how to cook, maybe when I was about seven. This is reminding me of a story. I can't remember if we talked about this or not at Burdock, but every time I've moved into a new house or apartment or whatever, it just dawned on me, the first meal I make is grilled cheese and canned tomato soup. And I think that's because I haven't unpacked pots and pans and it's easy to do. So, yeah, I've got an affinity for grilled cheese, too. Oh, yeah, I still love grilled cheese. You know, obviously they're a lot fancier than the white bread with craft single slices that I made back then, but it's still one of my favorite meals and one of the things that I'll... It's a go-to for sure, still, even all these years later. And tell the listeners, please, Tasha, about your start in the professional side of cooking. I actually went to culinary school for a short stint at George Brown way back in 1999, I was working as a, at a call center at the time for a cable company and uh, didn't want to leave that job though to go cook because cooks don't make any money. And I was making, <laughs> I was actually making, I was trying to pay off my student loans from university that I had just finished a few years before that. So I didn't actually go into cooking at that time, which is a mistake maybe, I don't know. It would have given me an extra 10 years, but it wasn't until, oh my goodness some years later and as a little bit of a buffer for cash because I didn't feel like working that summer I decided to work at the Calgary Stampede for 10 days and I worked in the catering department and it was that 10 days where I was like why haven't I been doing this for all of this time I've had all of these other jobs all of these other side gigs none of which were really making me happy and here I was you know running around this massive kitchen at the Calgary Stampede you know big enough to put a forklift in the side door this place was massive doing not even that exciting cooking but just making food every day for those 10 days I was happier doing that than I had been in years so where did you go from the stampede I know that you prior to coming to Vancouver you spent some time in Canmore yeah so after stampede a couple months after that I actually got a job in the local bar and that was my very first professional cooking job that was not nine to five but (laughs) that was my five day a week or six day a week job and that was you know it was a pretty simple job a lot of things were deep fried because it was a bar but that was my first foray into cooking professionally. That was in Calgary, and I moved after about a year to Canmore. And that's when I started working in what I call real restaurants, not bars. And in Canmore, was that, that's all associated, I'm guessing, with the recreation industry, with skiing, hiking, that. So was it seasonal work? It was not seasonal work, actually. Um, they are very busy in both winter and summer. So in the summer, you get all the people that are doing the hiking and uh, mountain biking, that type of thing swimming in lakes, (laughs) very, very cold glacial lakes. But in the winter, of course, you do get the skiers and snowboarders and everything. The shoulder seasons are pretty dead there, but it's easy to have a 365 job there. And most recently, until just a few days ago, you've been back in the mountains at a heli-ski lodge, is that right? Yep, that's right. I was working for uh, CMH, uh, Canadian Mountain Holidays, at one of their lodges called Galena. It's a heli-ski lodge. Quite interesting. I love the mountains, and it was really good to be back there for four months. Even just looking out the window made me happy in the morning. And the job was great. Uh, The people were pretty cool, and I really like that atmosphere cooking there. All right, and we're going to come to some other good views from kitchens, um, thinking of the galley on passing cloud. But before we get there, can you tell the listeners about your Vancouver experience? And of course, that's based about a block away from where we are right now at Burdock & Co. Yep, after having been in Canmore for about four years, 
as I like to tell the story, I'd cooked at all the good restaurants there and I was out of restaurants. I did have options. I could have moved back to Calgary and worked in some places there. I could have gone to Banff, of course. There are a lot of world-class restaurants there as well. But none of those things quite felt right. And at the same time, my partner had been considering moving to Vancouver for her career. So I thought, well, it sounds like a good idea. Started looking into it. And the more I looked into it, the more and more it seemed that it was the better move for me than moving to Calgary or anywhere else. Just to further my career, to get more experience, to learn new things. Yeah. And I had never really cooked in a city. Most of my cooking had been done in Canmore, which is small town, very specific sort of menus and good menus, but a very specific focus. So I needed to do something different. Okay, fair enough. And can you tell the listeners, maybe pick one or two things that stick with you from your experience at Burdock? What did you pick up at that restaurant that uh, maybe was new to you that, that you've carried forward in your career? Well, interestingly, even though I'd heard a lot of farm to table and heard a lot about seasonal cooking, it wasn't something that we really did in Canmore or Banff. I mean, a hundred miles from there is pretty much still nothing. And you weren't getting fresh anything, really. A lot of the ordering was going through Cisco or GFS, and it was coming from Arizona or Mexico or wherever things happened to come from. We did have a local farmer's market, so we did get the odd thing, but not so much. So when I came to Vancouver, and all of a sudden, like the first day I was there, there was this massive delivery of whatever vegetable it was. I can't even remember what it was, but it just came from Abbotsford, you know, just down the highway. And it was the first time that I'd been in a restaurant that had dealt with multiple suppliers and things that were literally fresh from the farm or fresh from the ocean that we were going to cook with that day and that we were going to change the menu every four, five, six weeks because the seasons had changed. That's the biggest thing that popped out at me. Yeah, the the whole seasonal farm-to-table really became a reality when I started working at Burdock. And it's one of the reasons I stayed, because the seasons keep changing, so the menu keeps changing, and there's always something new and exciting to learn. I'm looking out across the street from where we're sitting now, and I see this explosion of cherry blossoms, and I'm actually thinking I'm going to cook a little dinner for some friends tonight. So I'm trying to remember, maybe we can talk about this either during the interview or after, I want to make a crudo, like a halibut crudo, but flavor it with with the blossoms. What's my best way to do that? A little salt? Wrap it up? Put it in the fridge? Yep. If you want to cure the blossoms, generally you soak them, or sorry, wash them first, soak them in a salt brine, pour that off, and then you add some vinegar for flavor, and you can add apple cider vinegar, or if you have, there's apparently out in the world, there is a, a, a blossom vinegar made with cherry blossoms. I've never seen it in real life, but I've heard all about it. And then, yes, you pack them in salt after that. So it's probably about a two-day process, though. Yeah, or at least a 24-hour process. <laughs> all right. M- might have to do that next week. <laughs> well, let's move now, Tasha, to staying within BC, but an experience that we share, which is cooking aboard Passing Cloud. And that, for you, started, in, I think, in the summer of 2016, because I had been speaking with Ross and others at Outer Shores. They needed, they're always on the lookout for great chefs and people who are open to the experience. So can you tell the listeners, just really from the beginning, you chatted, I know with Devin Carr, who's another chef who's cooked on the boat. Tell me your impressions from your first chat with Devin to stepping aboard. Well, it's kind of funny how that happens because I had decided to move on from Burdock. We'd had quite the blowout party the night before. That was a Sunday night and I woke up on Monday morning and there's a text on my phone from Graham saying, hey, I gave Devin your number. And I was a little bit sleepy and a little bit hungover and I didn't remember who Devin was and I couldn't remember why Graham would have given him my phone number. So after a few texts, that became clear, and then Devin called me, and he's like, hey, uh, how do you feel? It's like, ah, and I realized it was an interview, and I was not at my best. It was really good that he wasn't actually there in person. 
he basically spent some time explaining to me how the order of the day goes on a boat and how what I was cooking would be affected by the places I was in, by the weather, all of those sorts of things, and gave me a few dates and asked, was I available for any of them, and how did I feel about doing a trip on a boat? And I'm like, sounds great. Tell the listeners about your impressions when you first stepped on, and I think your first trip you are saying was in and around Barclays Sound. So your impressions of stepping onto Passing Cloud and uh, looking at the galley for the first time. Well, I, I'd seen pictures of the galley online, but it doesn't really prepare you for the actual size. It's like uh, things in the picture are larger than they appear. So when I first stepped into the galley, I was like, whoa, this is like super compact, but you know, nicely laid out. It definitely has a flow to it that does work. I've been in larger kitchens that were harder to work in just because things weren't, the layout didn't work very well. But I mean, the boat itself is absolutely gorgeous. So we're talking about this beautiful schooner, 70 feet long, it's all wooden, and it's, it's kind of like the boat from your dreams, you know? Uh, I think the sails were down, yeah, the sails would have been down when I first saw it, but even from there, I was like, oh my God, this place is absolutely beautiful. I remember taking my shoes off, actually, for the first time, just so I could feel the wood on the deck underneath my feet, and I was like, yeah, this, this is it. This is, I want to be here. Yeah, it really is. It's the real deal. And when the and when the sails are up, it's it's majestic. Except of course then you're on a pitch and and the cooking becomes that much more challenging. So so maybe tell the listeners just a couple of the a couple of the challenges you encountered on Passing Cloud and a couple of maybe some benefits that you weren't uh, expecting. Uh, I think challenges, space does become a challenge, both space to cook in and uh, space to store things in. You know, you only have you only have so much space. And if you're trying to pack, for example, for 10 people for nine days, every little square inch of space becomes precious. And you want to make sure that everything that you put in there is something you're actually going to use and not something that's just kind of sitting there taking up space. Because you, you just don't have it. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges is also provisioning. You might be getting your food or your, your stores from a smaller port, which might not have everything that a city, a big city grocery store has. And so it does challenge, it's a challenge to your creativity to make something. Let's say you have a menu and then you've now basically thrown your entire menu out the window because half the stuff isn't there. So you're like, well, I've got all of the knowledge of my years in my head and not on the internet because the internet's not available. So it's not like you can Google anything either. So I think one of the benefits to that particular challenge of provisioning is that you get to be really creative with what you do manage to get. One thing that we did do as well, we set crab traps, we set prawn traps, and that's a pretty cool part of your job, pulling something out of the ocean and then eating it later on. Absolutely. I remember one time Matt and Liam dropped a prawn trap and we came back to it and they, they were yarding it up by hand, of course, and the uh, guests were gathered around and there was great expectation and we knew it wasn't prime prawn season, but we thought, oh, maybe we'll get some prawns here. They pulled it up and there were two prawns in it. I have had a similar experience. We were in a new area that I was sailing with Matt that time and uh, he wasn't too sure about that particular spot and he's like, it looks like it should be good. We'll, we'll leave it here and see what happens. And we left it overnight. Same thing. We pulled it up. There were two, but they were huge. And we're like, wow, it would have been nice to have about, you know, 20 of, up at that size. It, it was... It was still promising because we're like, okay, well, let's set it again and see what happens. And actually, we got totally skunked the next time. So. <laughs> and in terms of places that you saw, I know that you've done both of the, what I think of as the big areas that uh, Outer Shores does in, the, does in the summer. So the Haida Gwaii area and Great Bear. Anything stand out from either or both of those places just as experiences while you were there cooking? Well, it's uh, interestingly, I think one of the things that stands out the most is actually seeing orcas. That was a mass, I had never seen them in real life before. 
just having them that close up. It's like, oh my god, they're really real and they're really, really big. That was one thing. The sheer amount of birds. So you're on the ocean, of course, and you're always with an eye out for things in the water. But things that are flying in the sky, too. Like, you don't see a lot of birds in the city. And even when you think you do, you really don't. The, the number of eagles, you know, countless. All of the little water birds. And it's like, oh, there's a duck. And someone would correct me and tell me it was a merganser. It's like, sure. You know, puffins, you know, seeing puffins in the south part of Haida Gwaii. I'd never seen those in real life either. So just the sheer amount of birds actually is something that really stands out for me. So, Tasha, one of the things I really enjoyed being on the boat, it's a challenge, as you say, because the space is cramped and people are walking through your kitchen all day, every day. But at the same time, it gives you a much better opportunity to connect with the, with the guests than you have in most restaurant settings that I've been in, at least. So anything stand out to you on that front, your, your experiences and interaction with, uh, with the guests? Well, interesting, in a restaurant, even with those with open kitchens, you can't necessarily see what the guest's response is to the food that you've made. And there's nothing more intimate than cooking on a small boat. You hear everything and you see everything. And you know you made a home run when you were like heading up to the galley and all you could hear is, oh my God, and oh, this is so good. And you can hear the guests enjoying their meal. I think that was probably one of the favorite things for me because we got a lot of instant feedback on things that worked and things that maybe didn't work as well. But definitely I'm talking to the guests even outside of meals just about their lives and what brought them on the trip and what they were experiencing, like what they saw on the trip and what, what impacted them, what was important for them. Well, let's move now, please, to I want to ask you for just a few tips for listeners. When you're not cooking either professionally or at home, any favorite spots around Vancouver that you uh, would recommend to people? Well, I always like to eat at Burdock, actually. I was just there about three weeks ago. <laughs> always a guarantee for a good brunch or a good dinner. Let's see, where else do I like to eat in Vancouver? You know, my places are actually limited. I, I don't eat out a lot for a cook, actually. So I'm going to just go with Burdock. And uh, I like to go for dim sum once in a while at Cindy's Palace. <laughs> I'm going to check it out. I haven't been there. Where is it? It's on uh, Nanaimo and First. I think the actual address, because I've been there so many times, is 1796 Nanaimo. Can't get more specific. That's fantastic. <laughs> from Canmore to Great Bear and from grilled cheese to Orcas, I really enjoyed catching up with Tasha. It's always great to see what she's up to because you know it's going to be something both interesting and worthwhile. Thank you, Chef, for taking the time. To my talk with Chef Erin Vickers now, Erin is solidly dedicated to her craft, to her industry, and to her lucky guests. I was laughing at one point in our interview when Erin recounted the first time she and I met, uh, which was in Shearwater near Bella Bella on the central coast of BC. I was finishing a trip and Erin was coming aboard for her first ever trip on Passing Cloud. There's so much to tell an incoming chef and so many quirks to cooking at sea. And we had a fun but frenzied time during our transition. And then I stepped on the boat and like, I remember you and I like running around the boat talking about coolers and I was like, okay, so like, what do you have left? Like what's left over that I can use? And you're like, nothing. From that harried start, Erin has gone on to transform the cooking program for Passing Cloud, and it's now ever more focused on locality, seasonality, and sustainability. My thanks to Chef for sharing her time and her expertise, and also for making sure once and for all that the Chef Deboni podcast is going to have to include some explicit language warnings from time to time. Okay, I am here on a beautiful Wednesday afternoon at Six Acres in Gastown in Vancouver, and I'm delighted to be joined by my friend, Chef Aaron Vickers. Chef, thanks so much for taking the time and for being on Cheftimony. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. 
Can you start out, please, Chef, and just give the listeners a sense of your background. Talk about when cooking first became important to you and how you got into the industry. I was a kid who fought with my brother for a TV remote, and it was either... uh, cartoons if he won or uh, Julia Child and Martin Yan if I won when I was younger. So there was always like the 6 a.m. competition to see what we got to get. So I, I cooking. So, so it's fair to say it's been a long-standing interest. Yeah, it has. It's, yeah, most definitely. It's always been around. My, my mom was a cook and my grandparents were cooks and my dad was often cooking in the house and my abuela apparently was an avid cook as well so I'm it's in me honestly what was the first experience you had professionally in cooking how did you get into it into the industry beyond just a passion at home I was offered a position in a family business and I ran from it as quickly as possible um, in the opposite direction and it that was kind of the moment it was like this point and I was like, if I have to do something for the rest of my life, it's going to be something that I want to do. And I had had a career in violin, and I was a professional violinist previous to that. So I had kind of put that on the shelf and then decided to get a big fat student loan and go to culinary school and jump in feet first. I had spoken to chefs, and they had all kind of said, like, you should go do a stage in a restaurant before you do this. Like, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. And I kind of felt like if I did that then I would be scared shitless and not want to. So I got a huge loan and went to culinary school and worked full-time and had two jobs and went to school full-time and slept on the bus often. Well, that sounds like perfect training for a career in the culinary industry. Yeah, little little did I know the like 90-hour weeks ahead of me would seem easy in comparison, but... After culinary school, Erin worked in the Vancouver food scene, where she remembers Sean Cousins and Andrea Carlson as leaders in the industry. More recently, Erin had an experience as a stagiaire, effectively an intern, as we've discussed before on Chef Demoni, at a Michelin-starred restaurant south of the border. And tell the listeners about one experience that I know a little bit about, because we've spoken about it, and that was in San Francisco, doing a stage with uh, Dominic Crenn. Yeah, Chef Cren, she's awesome. I, like most foodies, ended up stumbling across her on Netflix, watching Chef's Table. And for me, I kind of saw her episode and then turned to the person I was sitting beside and said, like, holy fuck, this is the chef I need to work for. So then the person I was with, we kind of said, you know, let's, like, book a reservation, see if we get it. And we got the reservation. We're like, well, I guess we're going to San Francisco. So we went down and had dinner and Dominique came to the table and the person I was with loved to embarrass me and it ended with me crying through the first four courses of of the food and she came over and shook my hand and I was in awe and she was incredible and Juan Contreras who is their pastry chef who's like the heart and soul of Atelier Crenn for sure he's so creative. He came to the table and touched our table and I left them a note and my cookbook got signed and the following day she kind of tweeted out and sent me a message on Instagram saying uh, you should go check out Petit Cren and I begged for a stage and she was like haha and I was like no seriously like can I please like I'll do anything so I kind of pursued pursued Atelier Cren seriously for a couple weeks I eventually sent an email in my resume and they accepted me. Like six or eight months later, I had already joined Outer Shores, so I did my two trips with Outer Shores for the first two in 2016. And then when I came back, I was basically home for a week and flew down to Atelier. And are there any standout either experiences or <laughs> dishes or techniques or purveyors or what, what are the first couple of things that come to mind? 
Dom is incredibly focused on her story. It's really incredible how she creates the story and she writes a poem and it it becomes more than just a meal. And she creates experience. It was really inspiring. I try to do the same stuff on Passing Cloud. And we're going to come to Passing Cloud because I'm super excited to hear about your experiences there. Before we get there, can you touch on two more things? One, I know you're really involved in the industry and tell the listeners about the Chef's Table Society and you're now a board member and what your role is with that group and and what's going on in the spring of 2018. Yeah, Chef's Table Society is amazing. It's great. They're a group of chefs from Vancouver that have kind of gotten together a while ago and they basically decided to have group meetings and try and work together to focus on sustainability, apprenticeship, growing and training and to kind of really bring focus to the industry and bring chefs together. Fantastic. And one more topic before we get to Passing Cloud, and that's very timely, which is you are featured in a magazine called Where Women Cook, which is, as we were saying just before the interview, on stands now. So first, congratulations. And uh, second, please tell the listeners about the magazine and about your interview. So Where Women Cook is a magazine based out of the States. It's kind of sheds light on women fighting the good fight in the industry, which is fun. Where Women Cook, there's three. Where Women Cook, Where Women Create, and Where Women Work. Where Women Cook, focusing on women in the hospitality industry. And it's kind of peeling back the veil from the professional crap that we put out there where we're all happy and successful and it was a piece of cake. And it's kind of an opportunity for us to tell our stories and talk about our businesses, experiences, whatever that may be, and kind of create some camaraderie. They wanted to know my food journey and I I could have written an article that was positive and amazing and good for a magazine, but it wouldn't necessarily be the truth. I really wanted to kind of not shed the light on the downsides of the industry, but I, I wanted it to be real and honest. So I'm pretty passionate about what I do and I love cooking, but there's also been some struggles and I I wasn't shy to share that. So, Well, and I think that kind of honesty is important because I was having this discussion with a lawyer I interviewed for a previous episode. For whatever reason, both careers that I know, law and cooking, seem to be glamorized for some reason. And the reality in both careers, I can say they can be great, but they're both brutally hard work. And they both come with every challenge that you could possibly imagine. So I think that's the right thing to do because it gives an honest portrayal of the industry and it might be of assistance to people who are considering entering it. Yeah, for sure. One of my very close friends is a lawyer and we were kind of going through our careers at the same time and quite often text each other and it was like, I'm doing a 90-hour week. And she was like, I'm doing 110. <laughs> and we were really the only people who like kind of understood that. And the restaurant industry is weird, and there's a lot of glamour or like fairy dust around it. There's Food Network Canada and classy pictures, and it's like we're these big chefs that make a ton of money, and we're on TV and get to play with food all day, which is true for like a very small percentage. But the rest of us are also sacrificing a huge amount of time with family and it's hard work and you really have to love what you do. You got to fight the fight. So chef, I want to move now to an experience we share and that of course is cooking aboard Passing Cloud and I think it really was the first time we met. It was a rainy day 
in Bella Bella on the central coast of BC. We had a few hours together. I was leaving the ship. You were coming on. And we spent those few hours talking about the coolers and the, uh, the how to freeze the ice and rotate them through the coolers to keep everything cold. And it's just a fundamentally different environment to cook in. So please tell the listeners your impressions. The first time you, you stepped aboard Passing Cloud and uh, your thoughts and what that first trip was like. I remember that day. I remember that day vividly. Yeah, no, first, first day on Passing Cloud, I was like, this is the best ever. And I showed up and I thought I was going to be super amazing. And Matt picked me up in the Zodiac and... We went from Bella to Shearwater, which is where Passing Cloud moors. And then I stepped on the boat, and like I remember you and I like running around the boat talking about coolers. And I was like, "Okay, so like, what do you have left? Like, what's left over that I can use?" And you're like, "Nothing." And I have to get on the water taxi in like half an hour. So I wrote you a note on the ship's computer that's in a drawer that you don't fucking know about. And there's all this stuff here. And change the water bottles. And like, don't fuck up the coffee. And then, like, I think you pretty much, like, grabbed your bags and jumped off the boat. And I was like, what the hell did I just get myself into? Like, Jesus Murphy. Welcome aboard. Yeah. And then my order arrived. <clears throat> and then I promptly learned how to play Vegetable Tetris on Passing Cloud, which I feel, I feel like I've mastered. I feel pretty good about it. And then the fish order arrived, and then we played fish Tetris in the freezers. We've heard some of the challenges, and I agree with you. There are some challenges, but there are also some rewards. I mean, apart from the experiences, which are amazing, and the scenery, which is amazing, but I think there are culinary rewards, too, just because of where you are aboard Passing Cloud. Any thoughts on that? I think the biggest takeaway for any chef, not necessarily working for Outer Shores on Passing Cloud, but working for working on a boat is humility. You learn pretty quickly that you are not all that you thought that you were. Mother Nature is mighty, and boats are not constant, and you learn how to be flexible and accepting of situations, and you learn about patience and humility and rising above, and you learn the limits of your technique and your creativity, which I think is really humbling for a chef. Because I think a lot of us like to think that both technique and creativity are limitless. And you don't really find out what the edge of your limit is until you're on a boat with limited water and limited energy in the middle of fucking nowhere. And you just need to sort it out. But it's great. I mean, my first two trips were wild. You can't tame a wild horse. And that's kind of what I felt like I was doing on those two trips. And now, like, through working with Tash last year, I learned a ton. And working really closely with Russ and just kind of accepting some of the realities of Passing Cloud, being, like, a 70-foot schooner, like, she's a sailboat, so we sail her. Russ has really been, our owner has been really committed to sustainable fish and marine stewardship and coastal ecology and the cultural history of the coast for better and worse and there's a lot of better it's really pretty and there's some amazing places to go and there's a lot of worse there's a lot of realities of how we came to be where we are today and it, you know it would be really easy to just walk around and show people trees and amazing waterfalls but we talk about some of the hard topics and drive home the science and the reality of, of the marine environment that we live in and a lot of that 
filters down into the menu, which I found incredibly frustrating. I'm not even going to lie. But I love it. I love that our menu is not about me. I love that it's not about somebody's ego or an owner's pocketbook or an award that somebody's trying to get. We're not chasing magazine articles. We're not trying to save the world or be Michelin or get write-ups or have articles written about us. And, you know, some of those things happen and that's really great. But the focus of the menu now is like fish choices for the menu are based on cutting edge science on sustainability right now. What is best for us to pull out of the ocean right now? And how do we spread awareness for that? We started the season with albacore tuna last year and then we took it off because we didn't have access to it and we weren't sure about the science behind it. And we are like, okay, like we're not pulling albacore this year and it was halfway through the season and we decided to go with something else. And that was the best choice for the ocean at the time and for our business. And that's what we chose to do. And that's, that's what we continue to do all the time. How do you find foraging aboard Passing Cloud or just off Passing Cloud? And how much of a role does foraging play? I mean, I know it's exciting for the guests. Tell us about foraging. Foraging? And, and sorry, and I, I guess I'm, I'm using foraging as a, as a broad term. So I'm thinking everything from sea asparagus to crab. Yeah. Okay, so on Passing Cloud, we are lucky to have a prawn trap and a crab trap, both of which we use as often as possible, staying outside of protected areas and some of our agreements with some of the First Nations all along the coast. Russ has an amazing relationship with a lot of the First Nations people, including the Haida, and we're very lucky to be able to kind of tour those areas and we are really careful to stay outside of the limits and fish where we can and not fish where we can't. But we are blessed. We get side stripes and spot prawns. Uni or sea urchin has been brought on board. We don't do fish. We don't collect bivalves for obvious reasons. Russ, who's studied kelp and seaweeds and done a PhD in the relationship between seaweeds and sea otters and uni, obviously play a huge role in our menu. So we did a lot of local foraging for seaweeds. This year, I think we're going to have four. So in the spring, we just finished doing a huge forage of prophyra, which is nori, and green ulva, green let or sorry, sea lettuce or ulva. So we collected a bunch and dried those, and we have enough for the season. And now we're just kind of coming out of those two seasons and moving into nereocystis and macrocystis. So giant kelp and bull kelp. So we use the fronds and dry those, and then those come into our menu as sea vegetables, garnish, seasoning. We use them in stocks and soups. We use them on crust on fish. And a, a lot of the chefs are really encouraged to forage. Initially, I think for the chefs, foraging started when we got shorted on herbs from our orders. So Foraging by necessity. Yeah, foraging, right, right? Like, Limitation is the mother of invention, so we didn't get arugula, or we can't have fresh herbs, or the mixed greens didn't come, or, you know, we're on an off-ordering week, so a lot of our fresh produce was limited, which made the chefs introvert. And I, I am not shy when it comes to pushing outside the comfort zones of people, so... 
Great Bear Rainforest. I was digging up rice root and licorice ferns and learning all of the things from our bear specialist, Rosie, which was awesome. Now it's really like the heart and soul of our menu. It can be really challenging. Like after you bring all that stuff to the table and cut out all the things that are not good, you're kind of not left with much sometimes. And you know, you can either embrace that and be forced to be really creative or you can be like, fuck my life, I hate this job. <laughs> well, and I've seen some of the work that you do, and you clearly embrace the creativity, right? And that's, oh, God, you're making a funny face. But I've seen your work and the pictures, and it's beautiful. And, I mean, that's just a better option, right? That's more fulfilling as a chef. It is, and, you know, I, I love it, and I, I am somebody who's always been challenged by people who tell me I can't do something. My automatic response is, you want to fucking bet? So it's it's been good. Just my personality quirks worth it, work with it for sure. And we're we're lucky. And now we have great conversations. And one of our captains, Matt, has gotten really swept up in it. And he's brung up stories now that he's creating about sea anemones for a dish on the new menu that Matt loves, which is amazing. Our captain and owner Russ is now looking at like the tide line on really still days in Haida Gwaii. You can sail through these inland passages. And the ocean does a perfect reflection of the trees above, and it's almost like a mirror image. And we'll be driving, and Russ will turn around and say, Hey, chef, like, wouldn't it be great if we plated a dish that looked like the symmetry of reflection between terrestrial and marine? And I'm just like, yes, that would be amazing. <laughs> we totally need to do that. And Liam, our first mate, has fully flung himself into the food program. He's a closeted artist, and he ordered our plates and did all the plate selection for this year, which was amazing. And he's come up with basing the menu around certain environmental areas on the coast that we touch on, deep sea and intertidal, salmon forests, some of the interconnectivity. Kelp forest is another dinner we've themed. So it's good. Like Everybody's slowly getting wrapped up in the process, and Oriana, our office admin guru, is now taking on some first mate roles on Passing Cloud, which is great. So she's gotten really into it. We had her plating, and she was getting really excited. So it's been fun. It's really been like a team effort now, which is, which is great for me. I don't have to do it all. There is little doubt that Erin is fired up about great food and about the creative options cooking offers to us all. After our talk about the challenges and the joys of cooking aboard Passing Cloud, I asked Erin for her thoughts on how people can improve their own cooking, whether home cooks or professional chefs. For professional cooks, I would encourage you to stage. I would encourage you to, you know, go out and find a chef that you inspire. Find somebody that you think is doing really something super fucking cool that you want to learn. You know, like if you want to learn a ton about charcuterie, go hang out with Rob Belgium. Like he's amazing. If you want to learn super wicked Asian cool food and you want to do funky awesome local stuff, hang out with Andrea Carlson. She's amazing. If you want to like stand on your head and feel like you're at a Michelin restaurant in like South America, go work for Jefferson Alvarez because the shit he's doing is like the craziest in the world. For home cooks, there's a lot of opportunities. Like you can hang out at Dirty Apron, you can approach chefs that work in restaurants and say, hey, like I'm a huge foodie, I wanna do stuff. Like chefs in the city, we have a restaurant that we work at, but we also have passion projects and we teach people how to cook in our homes and in their homes, we do that all the time. There's schools that have amateur classes. De Brule, the school that I used to go to, had like an amateur and a serious amateur class. I think Karen McSherry down at Gourmet Warehouse offers like funky cooking classes. 
there's tons of availability. And you know what? A theme through everything you've said here, I think, is person-to-person connection, right? Like, it's get out there and meet people and work with them and learn from them. Yeah, 100%. I don't know... I mean, of the chefs that I, I work with, that are friends of mine, that I admire, that are my mentors, I don't know a single person who would deny somebody who would come up and say, like, look, like, I love what you do. I want to learn stuff. Can I just, like, hang out for a day? Will you teach me? Like, it's not even necessarily about money, but it's about, like... Chefs love nothing more than somebody who's willing to work for knowledge, and we love spending that time because for us, it's an opportunity to flash back to when we just started learning about cooking, and we get to revisit that, and the excitement, and the joy, and kind of seeing it all new and shiny again, it's fun for us, and we get to live that out. I would fully encourage people to like seek it out, seek me out. If I'm not available, I can give you names to like people I work with who would love to have you help out and hang out and teach you stuff. There's tons of people that are willing to share the knowledge. Well, I can't think of a better place to end it. That's awesome. Thank you, Chef, for your time and your passion and your enthusiasm. Yeah, oh, my pleasure. Anytime. It was so fun to catch up with two friends who have shared the experiences I was lucky to enjoy aboard Passing Cloud. Tasha and Aaron are both inspiring chefs. They're talented and they're smart, and they give freely of their time to help out other people who are interested in food. In other words, they're exactly the kinds of chefs we need more of in our industry. I'm glad they could both join me today on Chef-Demony to reminisce about some amazing experiences aboard Passing Cloud. Okay, that's all for episode number five. Remember to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, and please connect with me with any questions you have about the show. You can email me at graham at chefdemoni.com. Thanks for being here today. I'm Graham McLennan, and I hope to see you soon, perhaps in Haida Gwaii or the Great Bear Rainforest. And if we don't meet there, please join me next time right here on Chefdemoni. Chefdemoni.